Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the region, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. They were so terrified. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, 
Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept discussing the matter among themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the transfiguration and these stories and teachings that surround it are the very center of the Gospel of Mark, a major turning point in the story of Jesus' ministry and the story of Jesus' mission. Seven weeks from today, we are going to be reading Mark chapter 16 as we celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that powerful story that gives us hope and brings us joy because it means that our final enemy has been defeated and our salvation is assured. But before we get there, the Gospel of Mark takes a major turn. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, you've probably picked up on the urgency, the sense of urgency that Mark has about Jesus' mission in this first half of the Gospel. Jesus is kind of like zipping all over the place, going from one place to another, from Nazareth to Capernaum, to the Decapolis, to Sidon, to Caesarea Philippi in this story. One of Mark's favorite words in the Greek in this first half of the gospel is euthus, which means suddenly or immediately. And it seems almost like every sentence of the first half of of Mark's gospel starts with this word. Suddenly Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, Suddenly, Jesus called his first apostles. Suddenly, Jesus healed a man possessed by a demon. Suddenly, Jesus raised a young girl from the dead. Suddenly, suddenly, suddenly. There is an urgency to Jesus' mission in Galilee, an urgency summed up by his declaration at the beginning of the gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In this first half of the story, Jesus has been whipping from one place to another, demonstrating the power of God to reverse the effects of the fall, to heal sin and disease and injustice and even death. In the first half of the story, Jesus comes bearing the healing power of God, pointing people to the powerful reality of the kingdom of God in their midst. And to an extent... The disciples get that. At the beginning of our passage for today, Jesus takes the disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them, who do people say I am? And the disciples answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, a powerful voice that speaks out against political and religious power with the authority of God himself. And then Jesus turns the question back around to them. 
who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for all the disciples when he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The disciples get that Jesus is the Messiah. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, they have a very different picture of what the Messiah is. For most of us, we've heard this story before. We know what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the atoning sacrifice. He dies the death that we deserve to give us the promise of eternal life. But for most people in Jesus' day, including the 12 disciples, they have a very different idea. The Jews in Jesus' day understood, based on their reading of Scripture, that the Messiah would do three things. The Messiah would restore proper worship of God. The Messiah would defeat the enemies of God's people. And the Messiah would bring God's justice, God's restoring, righteous, healing, peace-bringing power to both Israel and all the earth. And as far as the disciples are concerned, Jesus is well on his way to accomplishing these things. Jesus has traveled all over the region of Galilee and beyond, bringing the healing power of God's kingdom wherever he goes, drawing a massive crowd of followers. He's come into conflict with the religious and the political authorities, a reality that the disciples hope will culminate in a showdown between Jesus and the Roman oppressors. Jesus has been teaching and preaching about the true worship of God through parables and sermons. And the disciples, I'm sure, were bursting with hope, bursting with expectation that Jesus would turn his face toward Jerusalem and lead his thousands of followers that he had collected in Galilee to a showdown, a military showdown with the Roman Empire. A glorious revolution that would overthrow King Herod, overthrow the corrupt priesthood, and establish Jesus as the Davidic Messiah King who would rule over a righteous kingdom of Israel for a thousand years. And I think that's probably why Jesus tells everybody to keep their mouths shut. Because he looks at their idea of what he's about to do and he's like, oh man, you guys do not get it. This is, this is dangerous. This is a crazy idea. You guys want to spark violence. You want to spark a revolution. So how about you guys just not tell anybody anything? Just don't talk to anybody. Jesus knows that his followers misunderstand. And he knows that that is not his path. Jesus will spend pretty much the entire rest of the Gospel of Mark trying to explain to his disciples that that's not the way. And the way that he explains it is by pointing to the most morbidly disappointing reality of his ministry, that he has come to die. We'll see this time and time again over the coming weeks as Jesus draws nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. In order to defeat death, Jesus will die. 
in order to free God's people, the Son of God will offer himself in their place. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed. Peter rebukes Jesus for being so morbid. But Jesus rebukes him, saying that he's not even interested in God's plan for salvation. He's just interested in human concerns, political concerns, revolution concerns. But that's not the way. Instead, Jesus teaches his followers that the way to follow the Messiah is not through glorious revolution, but through self-denial, self-sacrifice, bearing your cross. The disciples of Jesus are not called to lead armies. They are called to follow the shepherd. They are not called to prosperity and success in the way that this world understands it. They are called to sacrifice, to suffering. Their standard is not a glorious banner bearing the insignia of their king. It is an instrument of political terrorism, a symbol of torture, an instrument of death. Jesus teaches his followers that the Messiah must suffer and his followers will suffer in turn as they follow in his footsteps. And this will be the theme of the next seven weeks as we walk with Jesus to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the tomb. The Son of God bears the punishment for the sins of the world. And his followers will know that same suffering, will share in that same death, will experience that same rejection. But as Jesus leaves Galilee to move to Jerusalem, as he moves from his ministry of power to his ministry of suffering, Mark leaves us with a picture that shows us that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come with power. In this story, Jesus chooses three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and takes them up a high mountain where the curtain is rolled back and he is revealed in glory. Moses and Elijah appear before him and talk with him, and the three disciples are terrified at the power of this revelation. And it is a powerful revelation. In all four Gospels, the transfiguration has a central place. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it marks the transition from Jesus' ministry in Galilee to his ministry in Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, it serves as a summary of the whole story of what Jesus came to do. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only. Peter, James, and John see Jesus revealed in glory. Jesus is transfigured, literally changed in form from the ordinary earthly man who they know and follow to something heavenly, 
His clothes are dazzling white, representing his purity and authority. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, the two sections of the Old Testament showing that all of Scripture points to Christ. And for the second time in Mark's Gospel, we hear a voice from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John will go on to become great leaders in the Jerusalem church after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus, in this story, equips them with what they need by offering them a vision of the glory of God that lies just beyond the veil of this life. Jesus is revealed in glory as the pure and spotless Lamb of God, as the fulfillment of God's promises, as the anointed Messiah, as the Son of God himself. And for some of us, this story of the transfiguration rings true for our lives. Some of us have our own transfiguration stories. Times in our lives where Jesus revealed himself to us in a powerful way that transformed the way that we see the world. A turning point where God redirected the trajectory of our lives and put us on a new path. For some of us, the transfiguration story is our story, a mountaintop experience where we saw the glory of God revealed to us and were equipped for a special calling. Maybe there was a moment at a conference, at the fall retreat or the All-Ontario Youth Convention, when you knew that everything had changed for you. Maybe there was a life-changing moment of confession where God gave you the strength to overcome a sin that had enslaved you. Maybe it was a moment of physical healing, when God God delivered you from the brink of death by His miraculous power. Or maybe it was a moment of spiritual healing, when God gave you the strength that you needed, the grace that you needed, to forgive someone who had hurt you. Maybe it was a moment of call when you realized that God had given you gifts for a specific task that required a major life change. Whatever it is, these transfiguration stories, stories of revelation, stories of conversion, stories of a time when God made things clear to you are powerful, life-changing, and divine. They are a gift. But most of us are not like Peter, James, and John. Most of us are like the other nine disciples, sitting at the foot of the mountain, pondering Jesus' teaching about self-sacrifice and suffering. Most of us do not have transfiguration stories. Most of us have not seen the glory of God, or received a personal revelation, or heard the voice from heaven. For most of us, the words of Scripture are the closest we will ever come to hearing the voice of God in this life. The images of the Gospels and the Psalms are the closest we will ever come to seeing a vision of our Lord before our own resurrection. And the stories of God's people are the closest that we will ever come to having a transfiguration story 
in our own life, which is why they need to be shared, to strengthen the body of Christ. For most of us, we do not stand on the mountaintop with the glorious Christ. We follow the teaching that he gives us at the foot of the mountain. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Our faith is not sustained by these powerful, life-changing moments of revelation, but by an everyday, ordinary, quotidian life of faith. We gather for worship. We confess our sins. We sing God's praises. We meditate on his word. We say our prayers. We give to those in need. And we go out with the promise, if not the feeling, that God is always with us. This is the everyday, ordinary life of Christian discipleship. The life to which most of us are called. A life of sacrifice. A life of suffering. That we walk with our Savior. And the beauty in all of this is that in that ordinary, everyday faithfulness, we see shadows of the same glory that Christ revealed to his disciples on the mountaintop. Jesus is revealed in the face of a stranger, in the love of a parent, in the faithful care of a PSW, in the kindness of a friend. God's grace is revealed to us in everyday relationships, in everyday things, in water which washes us clean, in food and drink which nourish us and refresh us. The stuff of everyday life carries in it a shadow of God's grace, a shadow of God's glory to strengthen us in this life until that day that he comes again and we behold him face to face. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, you reveal yourself to us in so many ways. In ordinary things of life, water and bread and wine, relationships of love that strengthen us and encourage us. For some, we are blessed with experiences of your glory, life-changing moments, that set the course for our future. And for others, we are satisfied to rely on the teaching of your word and the revelation of the gospel. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would give us all the strength that we need to walk through this journey of life 
We pray that you would give us strength to endure trial, to endure hardship, to walk with others on the road of suffering. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit so that we will not be afraid, but trust always in your love for us. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. In your holy name, to your glory.